Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 11? Acts chapter 11. We have been, for the last few messages in the book of Acts, looking at what God did in the household of Cornelius and from a broader perspective with the Gentiles through the witness of Peter, looking both at the vision that Cornelius had and then the vision Peter had, bringing them together, Peter then preaching the gospel to them and God pouring out his spirit upon them as they were listening to Peter, and then Peter being called into question for his interaction with Gentiles and his defense of that, his defense of what God had revealed and what God was doing. As we considered that last week, we came down to the end of that section, which is in verse 18, where those who Peter had been speaking to, already believers, but those who were concerned that he had gone with and been with the Gentiles, they said in verse 2, or verse 3 rather, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But when Peter tells the story, shows the work of God, verse 18 says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. What had God done? We looked at a number of different explanations as to what God had done and what had happened. Of course, these Gentiles in Cornelius' household heard the word of salvation. They heard that Jesus Christ was Lord. They heard about what Christ had done. They believed. God poured out the Spirit upon them. And then they, I believe, unique not unique in a sense of the only time, but there are only a few times in the book of Acts where this is taking place. They speak in tongues. They speak in a language that they had not previously learned, but a known language. They exalted God, verse 46 of chapter 10, as a sign, a testimony to the fact that they had received that same spirit that had been given on the day of Pentecost, the other time, one of the other times where this took place. Of course, Peter gives the order that they're to be baptized. But what had happened was these Gentiles had come to Christ. They had believed in Christ. They'd been given the same spirit as the apostles and other believers. And they were given salvation. God had, look at verse 18, granted the repentance that leads to life. God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. Salvation is a work of God. Of course, this is God's work as he pours out his spirit. It is through the word of God and through the reception of the word of God by faith. We certainly would see our part in believing the gospel and turning from sin. But as that takes place, we have to acknowledge God is at work. God brings it about. This verse very clearly, verse 18, teaches that repentance is a gift of God. So does Acts 5.31, when the Scripture says, He is the one, speaking of Jesus, whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We certainly would say forgiveness of sins is a gift, but so is the repentance. the repentance that leads to life. This is also taught in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul writes, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So again, God granting repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. You might say, well, if repentance is a gift, and if faith is a gift, which it is, 
Paul said in Philippians to you, it's not only to given to believe on him, but also that you might suffer for his sake. You might say, well, then what do I do? What's my responsibility? How do I, how do I do this? Spurgeon, as he preached on this text, C.H. Spurgeon drew attention to this same point that God grants repentance. He grants salvation ultimately, but the the things in our lives that we would say, well, I repented. Yes, I did, but God worked that in me. I believed. Yes, I did, but God worked that in me. And he said, the way for a person to repent, if you're looking for this gift of repentance, is by God's grace to believe. To believe and think on Jesus. He said, if he picture to himself the wounded, bleeding side the crown of thorns, the tears of anguish, if he takes the vision of all that Christ suffered, he said, I will be bound for it. He will turn him to repentance. He even said, I would stake what reputation I may have in spiritual things upon this, that a man cannot, under God's Holy Spirit, contemplate the cross of Christ without a broken heart. He said, if it is not so, my heart is different from anyone else's. I've never known a man who has thought upon and taken a view of the cross and who has not found that it begat repentance and begat faith. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. That was the message that came to Spurgeon as a young man when he was sitting in a church on a snowy day and the pastor for some reason couldn't make it that day. So the person who was preaching just took a text and kept on repeating it and actually addressed Spurgeon as a young man and told him to look to Christ. And he said, later, I looked and looked until I almost looked my eyes away. There's no greater vision than the vision of God. Of course, the message that Peter is preaching is a message of faith. In verse 43 of chapter 10, he says, of him, all the prophets, speaking of Christ, of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So there's the, there's the response of the gospel that Peter was calling for, although he came short of saying it as he did on the day of Pentecost, repent and be saved, believe. But as he says those words, notice verse 44 of chapter 10, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So this is Peter preaching the gospel, giving the response or teaching the response of faith to the gospel, and then God sovereignly works by pouring out his spirit. And what happens? These people believe. And they repent. And those two things, as we'll see in the text today, those two things go together, belief and repentance. You really don't have one without the other. Someone who says they believe but has not truly repented doesn't truly believe. God works in the life that comes to faith, to turn from sin, to turn to God. We'll see that even in this passage as we keep on reading in Acts chapter 11. What is repentance? Fuller teaching of Scripture as you look at what repentance is. Of course, it's a turning from sin, but there's also an attitude towards sin. Spurgeon went on to say in that message, it's a hatred of sin. It's a turning from sin and a termination in the strength of God to forsake it. He said, it is possible for a man to repent without any terrific display of the terrors of the law. He may repent without having heard the trumpet sounds of Sinai, without having heard more than a distant rumble of its thunder. He said, a man may repent entirely through the power of the voice of mercy. Some hearts God opens to faith, as in the case of Lydia. When you look later in the book of Acts, it just says the Lord opened her heart to receive the things that were spoken by Paul. She believed, and she turned from her former sin and way of life. Spurgeon went on to say, others he assaults with a sledgehammer of the wrath to come. That sometimes is what's necessary to open the eyes 
of the lost to help them to see that there is wrath coming. That seems to be what happened. I cited Jonathan Edwards and that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That seems to be what happened on the day in Enfield when he preached. And there were many in the house who even, like Peter's message, it was during the message that people started to apprehend the wrath of God and the coming wrath and that they were under God's wrath, apart from they're turning from their sins and flying to Christ for refuge, that they were under God's judgment. Sometimes God works that way. Some are saved by fear, fear of what is coming, and that is coming. Wrath is coming. John preached, flee from the wrath to come. Jesus, more than any other person in the New Testament, warned of a place, a fiery place of judgment, where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. Used as an image, a place where fires were constantly burning, the garbage dump of Jerusalem, constantly fires burning there, smoke, So sometimes that is what God uses to catch the attention of sinners. I like what Spurgeon says. He says, some he opens with the picklock of grace. He just, through the, through the grace of God, the testimony of the goodness and grace and the love of God, I don't know what Paul was saying in the day when Lydia's heart was open, but you hear of the grace and goodness of God that he would give salvation to sinners, undeserving, that God would forgive sins, that he would wash them away, that we could stand before him righteous through faith in Christ. This opens the lock of the heart, turns a person from darkness to light. The last thing Spurgeon said is that some people, he says, they come with the crowbar of the law. Now, the wrath of God poured out upon sinners is certainly due to sin. What the law does is it gives the knowledge of sin. It shows us that we are sinners. It's the tutor, as we just read in Galatians, that leads us to Christ. It helps us to see I deserve judgment for what I have done. And of course, it causes us to seek a remedy. For these Gentiles, outside of Christ, without God, without hope in this world, Peter has come to preach the good news of Christ to them, and they've received the message, and now they become recipients of the grace and mercy and salvation of God. What a blessing. What joy. And that's why in verse 18, it says they glorified God. There was a glory word for God that he had done something for those Gentiles to bring them to life, to true everlasting life. The great thing is the chapter doesn't end there. There's more to come. There's more that God is doing among the Gentiles. Beyond Caesarea, there is Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And we could go on into the book of Acts and see wherever the gospel goes and people are coming to Christ and coming to faith and God's word is spreading and his salvation is spreading as people come to faith. But verse 19 shows us that in the providence of God, the message is spreading still, if you remember, from that time when Stephen was executed and people were scattered from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution. Notice that in verse 19, it says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, that's back several chapters. But God is still using that work of his providence, allowing the persecution to come, 
spreading out the disciples, and now they're going everywhere preaching the word. But notice in verse 19, it says that they went to these places. It says they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. So obviously, this scattering through persecution brought the news of the gospel to places where it would not have, it seems, gone otherwise, at least not this quickly. Phoenicia is the coastal plain around the rim of the Mediterranean there, bordered by Lebanon. Tyre and Sidon were famous cities in this region, the region of Phoenicia. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. As I understand, the spread of the gospel to Cyprus came in part because there were Jews and synagogues there. There were copper mines there that the Jews were sent over to uh, spend their time working in those copper mines and profited from that. It seems that Barnabas may have been one of those people because he is a Cypriot. He's from Cyprus. Later, Paul and Barnabas would go, and in the first missionary journey, they would go to that island and go from one end of the island to the other, preaching in the synagogues. And so that's a place where the gospel had spread, but it would spread also through Barnabas and Saul later on. But then the focus here is Antioch. Verse 19, it says, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. And then in verse 20, it's the focus of Antioch that we're concerned with as the news of the gospel has gone there and the gospel spreads not only to Jews there, but also to Greeks, more Gentiles. We'll look at that in just a moment, but as far as Antioch goes, this is, someone has said, by far the most significant of the three locations, situated on the eastern Mediterranean seaboard about 310 miles north of Jerusalem. Antioch was the capital of the Roman province of Syria, a center of trade, commerce, and scholarship, and inside size, the third largest city of the Roman Empire, with a population estimated around a half a million people. Like the Jerusalem of today, it was divided into distinct ethnic sectors, Greek, Syrian, Jewish, Latin, and African. So you have this large metropolis divided up into sectors, according to this historical picture. A half a million people. And the persecution that happened in connection with Stephen sent disciples to that city to these other places as well, but to that city. But when they went there, it says in verse 19, they spoke the word or they were speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Now, we'll consider this matter of kind of keeping the gospel only to the Jews, but I want to just take a step back and think about what that statement says that these disciples were doing. Again, who are the people? Who are the ones who are evangelizing? It says those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. We see that reference to that back in chapter 8. And what were they doing? It says they were speaking the word. And it's small caps in the New American Standard. But we know that the word is what? It's the word of God. And they were speaking the word. Uh, this word, as it's translated, just simply word, is shorthand for the message of the gospel. In Acts chapter 3, Luke writes, but many of those who heard the word believed. It's actually translated message there, but the word is word. Many who heard the word believed. What word? Well, the word that Peter preached. What did Peter preach? He preached the gospel. In Acts chapter 4, the church prayed that they would speak the word of God with boldness. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles said that they must devote themselves to the ministry of just simply the word. Obviously, this is the word of God. It's the preaching of the gospel. Acts 6, 7, the word of God kept on spreading in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, verse 4, the church is scattered and they go everywhere preaching the word. 
Acts chapter 8, verse 25, the apostles solemnly testified to the Samaritans and spoke the word of the Lord to them. In Acts chapter 10, as Peter is preaching, look back at verse 44, chapter 10, verse 44. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. The word message there is word. What's the word? What are the words? It's the words of the gospel. So in context, I'm just saying in context, when it says that they went speaking the word, it's very specifically the gospel word, the message of salvation. And who is doing this? This is not Peter. This is not Saul. This is not Stephen. This is not Barnabas. He's not there yet. This is not Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, any of those men. This is those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, and they made their way there. We don't know what attracted them to Antioch at a time of persecution when they had to leave what seemed to be their home for a time, Jerusalem. They just go... And they are, just as they were in Acts chapter 8, all at it. My point is, these are just, these are people like us. They're everyday disciples. They'd received the gospel. They heard the good news of Christ. And now it doesn't sound very uh, complicated, does it? They're just speaking the word to others. They're telling other people the gospel. And I think just by virtue of the example of these individuals, we have an example here of just day-to-day -day evangelism, reaching people who are near you. Seems fairly simple, but are you doing it? Am I doing it? Are we doing it? Are we speaking the word of the gospel to others? When was the last time that you talked with someone who does not know the Lord about the gospel? And is there someone in your life right now that you're praying for and you're working towards reaching them with the gospel? Now, I do believe as we think about preaching the gospel, we have an example here, verse 19, of just, again, Everyday believers who are speaking the word. Now, they're not speaking the word to the broader group that they could at Antioch, but at least they're obeying the Lord in terms of speaking the word. There may be more people that we also could be speaking to, but are we doing it in the first place? And corresponding to that, there's something else that may not be on the surface here, but certainly is in other passages of Scripture in, in, in the New Testament, drawing attention to the, the matter of the life, the life of the believer. Our words need to be speaking the light of the gospel, but our lives also need to be speaking the light of the gospel. So is your life commending the gospel? Is there light and wisdom, God's wisdom, shown in your life that is commending the truth to other people? To those in your own household? To those of your friends and maybe extended family and then those outside the household of faith, those who don't know Christ, but we have interaction with, is our life what it ought to be? It's not one or the other. You can't claim faithfulness to God because you're preaching the gospel, but living like the devil. Pastor John and the deacons and I were reading a book by Sinclair Ferguson where he's talking about living worthy and living worthy in light of the gospel that we believe, living in a way that's consistent with that message that we've come to believe, and of course, living worthy of God. And he makes a point in that little book 
that I think is interesting. He says there's something here so obvious that we rarely notice it. The New Testament gives us virtually no advice about how to witness to Jesus Christ. Yet who can doubt the impact of the witness of the early church? All apparently without books, DVDs, TV programs, the internet, or entire organizations in seminars led by experts. Just think of all the things that go on in the name of evangelism, all the training seminars and all of that. And he says, in other words, you've got a successful early church that's doing it and seeing people come to Christ. He says, what explains the difference? Why in the West do we need to devise techniques for witnessing to Christ? He says, perhaps the simple answer is that we've not lived in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've had too, all too little, he says, of the lifestyle, the atmosphere, the accent of heaven where Christ is. Your life matters. Your testimony for Christ matters. Your relationships matter. Your speech matters. Our lives need to be commending the gospel. And then as our lives commend the gospel, not only will we have opportunities because people will ask us, but we also will be filled up with the truth of God that's affecting our lives that we, we can't help but speak it and tell others. Again, it's really a simple, uh, simple verb here, speaking the word. Notice verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now that gives us the content, the content and now the broader group that they ought to be preaching to. If Jesus said, go preach the gospel to every creature, well, the Greeks are creatures too. And so would be any of those groups if that historical picture is accurate within Antioch, the Greek, the Syrian, the Jewish, certainly. There were many Jews there, but also the Latin, the African. All of those people groups and more need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was that group, notice it says in verse 20, it says there were some of them the ones who came from Jerusalem, some of them, and they weren't native to Jerusalem. They were men of Cyprus. They had lived on that island. And Cyrene, that would be in Africa, Libya, that city, that area. It's that group of people, it says, who came to Antioch. And in the New American Standard here, it has the word began, that's supplied. It just gives the idea that they started and they continued. There's a continual preaching of the message, and they're preaching to who? It says the Greeks also. These are Gentiles. Peter has preached to Cornelius' household, but now we have God at work in another place, and now the Greeks, those who are native Greek speakers, I believe is who he's talking about, could actually be a native of Greece, who are now hearing the message. These are not Jews. There is some question about that. If you compare translations, look in the margin, the word that uh, occurs here, uh, depending on what manuscript, it's either Hellenists or just a word that just simply means Greeks. And I think in context, it's proper to see that difference in manuscripts. You've got a word here that it could be because Luke uses this word at other times, Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews. But that's actually probably what these men are. And in the context, we're talking about how the spread of the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And that seems what's really going on here, that this is actually a new group of people, Greek speakers. They're not Jews they're Gentiles. I think the contrast with the previous verse, at the end of the verse, it says, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Well, the Jews in Antioch most likely were speaking Greek. 
But my point is, is as you look at this new group of people, the, the, those who are being evangelized, these are Gentiles, and the ones who are doing the preaching are just speaking, preaching the Lord Jesus to these people. They're preaching Jesus as Lord, as Messiah, just as Peter was in chapter 10. And what happens when the Lord Jesus is lifted up and proclaimed, when his authority is recognized? What did Peter say in chapter 10? He is Lord of all. He's not Lord of the Jews only. He's also the Lord of the Gentiles. And of course, he's Lord of all. He's not only Lord of the Jews and Gentiles. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He is absolute master. He has control by right, given by the Father as he rose from the dead. Remember what he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. This is his rightful authority as the Messiah. You could certainly say in his essence as the Son of God, of course he has authority over this world. He made the world. He owns the world. And yes, this is my Father's world, as the songwriter said, but this is also Jesus' world. And so the preaching of the Lord Jesus is to preach the Creator, is to preach the Savior, is to preach the one who is in authority over all. Of course, he's the judge, as Peter preached in the previous chapter. He's the judge of the living and the dead. There's not anyone who will be excluded from facing Jesus Christ in heaven or at the point of judgment. Every single person will. They're preaching the Lord Jesus. They're preaching the one who can save them from their sins. Now, as you look at the New Testament, to apply the word Lord to Jesus is significant. It seems as though in history it's growing in significance in people's minds just at large as Caesar is being declared to be Lord. And as Caesar is making claims not only to be master and ruler, but also God as emperor worship began and continued. And so growing, I would expect, it certainly did in church history, growing in understanding of this contrast between this Caesar Lord and Jesus Lord, there was a definite contrast between these two, their authority, but also in terms of what the Greeks and the Jews would understand, also deity. So when it says preaching the Lord Jesus, there is an implication, certainly there would be in the confession, Jesus is Lord, the implication of his deity. The gospel here is being preached. And verse 21, what happens when the gospel message is preached? God is at work. Well, God brings by his powerful hand more to faith. Look at verse 21. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them, that is, was with those who were preaching the message, the message of the Lord Jesus, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. If you remember, it was the whole household of Cornelius and all the friends that gathered the scripture says that the spirit was uh, fell upon, verse 44 of chapter 10, all those who were listening to the message. So however many came to Cornelius' house, however many people there were that day, all of them came to Christ, all of them. But here it is a large number. God is at work with these witnesses, again, everyday witnesses, you might say, like us, and as they preach the message of the Lord Jesus, as they simply speak the word, the Spirit of God is at work, and a large number, notice this, who believed turned to the Lord. There's the statement again of faith and repentance right together. Sometimes you see just belief or faith, and sometimes you see just repentance, but here, Luke, as he writes it, gives it right together. This is a great verse to understand that. Those who believed turned to the Lord. 
And how did that happen? I go back to the beginning of the verse. The hand of the Lord was with them. This is the power of God. How did they come to belief and turn? God was at work. It's the hand of the Lord. There's a theme in Scripture. If you read the Bible or study the Bible in terms of that theme of the hand of the Lord, sometimes the hand of the Lord is against someone. Samuel said to the children of Israel, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. The hand of the Lord was against Elymas, the false prophet. He's also called Bar-Jesus in Acts chapter 13, and he was blinded. This is just an exhibition of the power of the Lord to oppose his enemies successfully, perfectly, whether it's an individual or a whole nation. If the hand of the Lord is against you, you're in trouble. But if the hand of the Lord is for you, like it was upon Elijah, the scripture says he outran Ahab's chariot to Jezreel. Miles, he outruns a chariot or ran before it. Either way you take it, he's running pretty fast. He's running faster than a chariot and God's hand is upon him to do that. John the Baptist, the other time that Luke uses this phrase about the hand of the Lord, it's in Luke chapter 1 where he says when it's taught when when John the Baptist's uh, father and his identity is in question what is this child going to be what is he going to do it says in Luke 166 all who heard them kept in mind saying what what then will this child turn out to be for the hand of the Lord was certainly with him in other words the power of God was upon John to accomplish the purpose that God had for him. And you look at John, even in the womb, he's testifying to Jesus. Mary walks in, John's in the womb, and he hears the voice of Mary, the mother of the Messiah, and he leaps in the womb to rejoice because the mother of the Messiah has come into the room. That is the power of God. That is the hand of the Lord that was upon him from the time that he was a baby and then through his life. You know, they thought John was the Messiah himself. John is preaching the gospel. He goes out into the wilderness. The people just follow him there in droves. And as he preaches the message of Christ and people are believing, they're asking him, are you the Christ? And he says, no, I'm not the Christ. There's one who's coming after me who is preferred before me. I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. But God's power was certainly upon John. That same power, the hand of the Lord, was with these disciples. There's certainly an application there for us. That if we're doing the Lord's will in the power of the Spirit, if, if we're obedient to what He commanded us to do, His hand will be upon us. I, I do believe that means that we can't really live in a pattern of sin and also with some outward actions that seem like obedience. No, we need to be truly devoted to, submitted to the Lord and doing His will. Being on mission. Obeying His great commission. I do believe that's how we will be blessed, how God's hand will be upon us for good, is if we're doing what He wants us to do. We start doing other things other than what He wants us to do. He's not going to bless that. He could just remove our candlestick right out of its place. And you know what happens sometimes? God doesn't actually remove the people. He just removes the candlestick. There's no light there. There are people meeting, but they're unbelievers or they're disobedient believers. Now, I don't want that to happen. I'm hoping you don't want that to happen. We need to obey the Lord. It's His hand that brings blessings. There's a prayer 
in the Valley of Vision. You've never heard of the Valley of Vision. It's a booklet, a book of prayers, not named, but Puritan prayers. Many suggestive thoughts that are encouraging will help you to be thankful, pray to the Lord. This author said, I thank thee for the temporal blessings of this world, the refreshing air, the light of the sun, the food that renews strength, the raiment that clothes, the dwelling that shelters, the sleep that gives rest, the starry canopy of the night, the summer breeze. I thought it was appropriate as I was thinking about this in light of our weather and the winter chill. The flower sweetness, the music of flowing streams, the happy endearments of family, kindred friends. Things animate, things inanimate, minister to my comfort. My cup runs over. Suffer me not to be insensible to these daily mercies. So there's a sense in which we are recipients of the blessings, the goodness of God, and it is His hand that does these things graciously. That author went on to say, Thy hand bestows blessing. Thy power averts evil. So the simple blessings come from the hand of the Lord, but when God's hand in this sense is with someone, there is a powerful manifestation of His working, and in this case, it results in the salvation of sinners. You want to pray for this church? Pray that the hand of the Lord would be upon us for good. Pray that the hand of the Lord will be upon every person who preaches or teaches. Pray that the hand of the Lord will be upon everyone who serves in whatever way. You could pray that God's power will accomplish great things through us. There's certainly things that our church, by God's grace, could do if His power was with us, if we're doing His will, if we're obedient to what He wants us to do. Again, we get off mission and we pursue our own will and we pursue our own way, and what's going to happen? God's not going to bless that. You know what could stop that, the God's hand, would just be prayerlessness, because we do have to pray for it. We need to ask the Lord. We need to be obedient to the Lord. We need to ask the Lord. When God's people pray, things happen. I've seen that. Have you seen that? In your life, and I would certainly say in church life, when God's people are praying, there are things happening. When God's people do not pray, there are things that are not happening. Now, I'm not saying God is impotent without our prayers. I'm just saying He doesn't work when we don't pray. We may work in other places and do other things, but in terms of us, that's how we certainly access the power of God, and certainly as we submit to His will. We're not trying to bend Almighty God to our purposes. We're trying to ask God to do His will among us and through us. Another thing that could keep God's hand from working or could actually bring God's hand against us would be unrepentant, ongoing sin. Just pursuit of sin. God is not going to bless or prosper what is opposed to Him. And if God doesn't set his hand against you immediately, that could be his patience. It also could evidence, if you don't see the hand of God disciplining you and you're living in known sin, you could just not be a child of God. Now, God does set his hand against sinners. If you're living in wickedness and His hand is not against you, it will come. God is patient, but God is also just. Praise the Lord in the passage here. God is at work blessing and bringing salvation. It says the hand of the Lord was with them, empowering their witness and a large number who believe turn to the Lord. Many people came to Christ. Luke doesn't tell us how many. He just says a large number. 
He used this phrase on other occasions, once in Iconium in Acts 14, another time in Thessalonica, when many people were converted. And again, here you see that combination between believing and turning to the Lord, that faith and repentance. J.C. Ryle said true repentance is never alone in the heart of any man. It always has a companion, a blessed companion. It's always accompanied by lively faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherever faith is, there's repentance. Wherever repentance is, there's always faith. He says, I don't decide which comes first, whether repentance comes before faith or faith before repentance, but I'm bold to say that the two graces are never found separate, one from the other. Just as you cannot have the sun without light or ice without cold or fire without heat or water without moisture, so long you will never find true faith without true repentance. So despite the profession, when there's continued disobedience in a life, despite the profession, when there's continued disobedience, what does that mean? Ongoing wickedness. No turning from it, just a continued pursuit of it. Maybe curbed because at times there are consequences that come, but there's still a pursuit of that sin in spite of the profession. So you can make a profession but not believe. You can say, I'm a Christian. You can come to church. You can... Mind your P's and Q's or whatever you want to say. However, you, you, you do everything that seems to be right from the outside, but you inside could be full of wickedness and sin. You might not show it to other people, but it's the reality in your life. These two things go together. Now, I'm not trying to cause alarm for anyone who is truly born again and you struggle, I think it's a good thing if you're struggling, you're fighting, you're trying to do what's right. But it's another thing if you're not struggling. You're just walking in a path, and the only thing that keeps you from going down that path at times is people look at you and you say, oh, I've got to shape up. It's not God, in other words, and your awareness of God or your faith in God or your faith in Christ, but it's actually the knowledge of other people that when you come to be aware that other people are watching, you shape up. That's not salvation. That's actually hypocrisy. Zechariah 12 10 puts it this way, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn. They're going to look in faith and then there's mourning. And that mourning is associated with true repentance. Can I ask you today, have you believed and turned to the Lord You've trusted in Christ and you have turned from your sins. You've heard the gospel. You would even say, I know the gospel, I believe the gospel, but there's just practically no effect in your life. You see, there will be a turning. Attorney. Now, I talked with some of you, and I know even a message like this puts you on pins and needles because you're thinking, like, I struggle with assurance anyway, and he's talking about that again. And I just want to encourage you. I'm not trying to talk anyone out of their salvation if they truly have it. But there are certainly those who are self deceived who are a part of the visible church. They gather with the church, but they're not truly believers because they've never turned. Oh, they might have made a public profession. They might have been baptized. They might have even become a member of the church. We've had people who have become members 
And they've left us. And after they've left us, it's been proven by their life. They never knew God. They just went on in a path of sin, and there they are today. Now, it's a sad thing that there's a possibility that someone actually stay in the church and go undetected. It happens. But go undetected and for years and years of their life be deceiving themselves and everybody else thinking that they're saved and other people thinking they're saved. When there's actually been no repentance, no turning from sin, no hatred from sin in their heart and life. No struggle going on, except the struggle not to be seen by others when they would be exposed to view and then ashamed of their actions. There's a story in that Building on the Rock series. I've given this book to a few of you. If you're interested in it, I'd be glad to share. Uh, it's a wonderful set of stories that are oftentimes gospel-focused, based on truth. Story that came to my attention as I was reading one was of a little orphan girl named Katie. She had a grandmother who was living nearby, but her way of making enough money to help provide for her needs was to serve as a maid. This is some time ago in the UK and she was serving as a maid to a pastor's family. And one day, this pastor began talking to her and taught her how to pray to God. But not really knowing her very well, coming to be acquainted with this little girl, he wanted to help her see the gospel. And so his first instruction was to pray, Lord, show me myself. Show me myself. And she served in her capacity, but at a certain point she became ill. And she was living with her brother at the time. And her brother, concerned about her, went and got the pastor and brought the pastor to her. And when he got there and the pastor saw that she looked like she was asleep, but her brother said, I brung the preacher so he can help. Of course, he wasn't the doctor, but as he came and asked how she was doing, her response was, not very good. She said, I've been praying the prayer you taught me, and it didn't make me feel happy at all. What was the prayer? Show me myself. He said, how did it make you feel? She said, like Eve, I'm not a good girl before I thought I was good because I did my best for grandma and you, but I'm such a sinner and I think God is very angry with me and I don't dare pray that prayer anymore. I'm afraid God will put me right into hell. The pastor then said, well, that's not the only prayer you can pray. You can also say, Lord Jesus, show me yourself. Show me myself, but Lord Jesus, show me yourself. So apparently she began praying that prayer, but the pastor lost touch because the grandmother found other arrangements for her brother and her and moved into a different situation. The pastor just lost contact. And for years, though he prayed for her conversion, he didn't see her, didn't know. Until the young woman came to his house. And when he was called for and came to the door and realized who she was, Here's Katie, all grown up. Pastor says, tell me about yourself, Katie. But first, tell me this. Did you pray that second prayer I taught you? She immediately started weeping. Yes, sir, I did. And I can never thank God enough for allowing me to meet you. The Lord Jesus showed me himself and gave me peace. There have been times when I lost that peace and I would pray that prayer again and God would give her peace again. Show me myself 
certainly is a prayer that we could pray even as believers. If you're a believer, you can pray, search me, O God. Try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That could be a prayer for sanctification. Show me myself so that I might repent and turn. But obviously, for someone who does not know the Lord, if you ask the Lord to show you yourself, and you look at yourself in light of the law, the law of God, the commands of God, you will find, as I did, as anyone does who has come to faith in Christ, that I find myself falling far short of the glory of God. I fall short of the righteousness of God. I find myself a sinner before God. And I need to repent and turn from that sin and turn to Christ who will welcome me. He'll welcome me. He loves sinners. He came to this world to lay down his life for sinners. To rescue sinners. To wash sinners from their filthiness and their uncleanness. To give them everlasting life. Whoever is thirsty, Jesus cried out, let him come to me and drink. I will give you the water of everlasting life. He has that power. John says he was talking about the Spirit, which if the Spirit is in your life, there will be a change. There will be a confession of Christ. There will be a turning from sin. There was at Cornelius' household there was here in these Gentiles, and when the news came, look at verse 22, it says the news about them reached the ears of Jerusalem, uh, at, of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, that's the grace of God at work. When someone turns, when someone believes, when there's salvation. Oh, that there would be today in your life and mine, a demonstration of the grace of God. If he has saved you, may he assure you today. May he encourage you today in his love. If you don't know him and that assurance is not coming, may he deliver you from any delusion that you may be under so that you will truly come to faith in Christ and find that salvation. Praise the Lord, he is a God who saves sinners. Where would we be without him? And you know what? You could today. You could come to Christ today. Now is the accepted time. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Why put it off? If we're talking about eternal salvation, and without that, you are lost forever, why would you put that off? Unless perhaps, and the danger is, that you love your sin and you want to continue in your sin. You better watch out, because the hand of the Lord could very easily come against that. He's merciful. He's patient. But he is just. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we bow before you today, only you know the hearts, you know each of us, you know our names, you know the number of hairs on our head, you know our steps, you know our daily life. So there is no hiding from you. Lord, we thank you that you bring salvation to sinners. And if we have received that salvation today, there's certainly reason to rejoice in you and your goodness as you save these Gentiles, these Greeks. Your hand powerfully worked with those who were witnessing and people were confessing and believing Christ. 
But if there's someone here today who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, who has not turned from their sins, who's walking in a path of darkness, Lord, I pray that even today they would turn from that darkness and turn to Christ, who is the light. You have the power, Lord, to raise the dead. You have the power to open the eyes of the blind. You have the power to cause the lame to walk and leap. And only you have the power to save a sinner. And we pray that you would. And we pray that you'd help us to be busy about speaking the word to those who are outside the household of faith, to tell the good news to those who need it. Give us grace, we pray. Help us to be faithful to what you have commanded us to do, that your hand might be with us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.